You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Hello and welcome to this online event about helping young children with their literacy and thank you very much for joining us. I'm Dr Sandy Leeton-Gray, Associate Professor at the Institute of Education and your chair this afternoon. Now we all know that reading is absolutely fundamental to children's development and progress in their learning depends on it. Countless pieces of evidence show the link between children making good progress in literacy and future success in later life. So this afternoon we've brought together two experts to discuss how to nurture children's interest in reading. Now, in terms of how we're going to run the event, once I've introduced our speakers, I'll kick things off with a couple of questions, but we're here to respond to your comments and questions. So please share those throughout the Q&A function on Slido. You can also tweet about the discussion using the hashtag IOE Coffee Breaks. To introduce our speakers, we have Dr. Rachel Levy, Associate Professor in Education at the IOE. Prior to joining the IOE, Rachel was based at the University of Sheffield. She researches young children's reading, including the influence of gender on children's engagement with literacy, as well as opportunities for literacy learning beyond school. And more recently, Rachel has been exploring shared reading practices in family settings. She's also a former editor of the United Kingdom Literacy Association mini book series designed to help teachers keep up to date with current thinking in literacy teaching. And today we also have Gemma Moss, Professor of Literacy and Director of the International Literacy Centre at the IOE, before which she was based at the University of Bristol. Gemma is interested in the shifting relationships between policymakers, practitioners and stakeholders that are reshaping the literacy curriculum and the use of research evidence to support policy and practice in education. Gemma is also a past president of the British Educational Research Association. Now I'd like to ask you first, so I'm going to direct this first to Rachel if I may, um, I'm wondering to what extent you agree with the statement that the earlier children learn to read the easier it will be to keep them reading for pleasure. Okay, thank you. And thank you for the lovely introduction. The way that I look at this is not so much really looking at the question of how early is it that we should be teaching children how to read. And again, I think this very much depends on your definition of what we mean by reading, but how early we should be encouraging children's engagement with reading. And I would say from as, as soon as you want, as soon as, you know, I know of some people who read to children in the womb, you know, so I think that that sense of just um, enjoying books, sharing books, encouraging, you know, your child to, to listen, listen to stories, I, I think can, can start as, as, as soon as you want. Um, and, and should be part of reading for pleasure and can go on as, as long as you, you know, as long as you want to. Um, I mean, I know, I know of some children who have been read to up until kind of secondary school and beyond. The question of, of children themselves actually learning to read, um, I mean, again, I think it depends what you mean by that. But if you're talking about learning to decode texts and actually um, you know, make, make sense of, of the, the printed text, well, then I think that depends on the child. 
some children want to do that from a very young age, some children don't. And I think to force a child to be um, to be decoding when they're not ready can actually be very, very harmful and can really put children off books um, and really make children feel very demoralised and unconfident. So I definitely don't think that, that it should be a case of forcing children to start reading as, as soon as possible. And how about you, Gemma? Well, I'm in the thing about learning to read is it's one of those things you can't say exactly how long it will take children to do. I had two children. They both grew up in the same household. Essentially, there was a two year gap between them. My eldest taught himself how to read by four and went to school already a reader. We do not know how he did it. We didn't sit there with flashcards or in any way encourage him. We were reading a lot of books with him. His sister, two years younger, uh, didn't really get reading until she was seven. Uh, net outcome, she has a first, he has a two one. So, you know, people take different routes into reading. It's a complicated skill. Um, I think the main thing for parents is to read to children from a very early age. That matters because the language of books is different from the language of speech. And the more you can introduce your child to the language of books early on, the easier it is for them to pick up what Myra Bars used to call the tune on the page. They will ingest that sense of what stories are and how they work. They will get interested. Rosie the Hen Goes for a Walk is a lovely book that teaches children about narrative. And it teaches children about narrative because of the difference between the words on the page and what's happening in the pictures. In the pictures, a fox is chasing Rosie the Hen, who is blissfully unaware right the way throughout the story that he is trying to grab her. So that's a great way of introducing children to the dynamic of narrative and encouraging them to revisit every time they open that book, will the fox get Rosie the hen this time round? So there are lots of things that you can share with children who are too young to read the text for themselves, but will get them into the pleasure that reading can give them for later on. It sounds a bit like stop the pigeons, doesn't it? <laughs> So uh, staying with you, Gemma, now, what about building stamina for reading? Ah, building stamina. Now, that is such a good question. And of course, well, if you're reading with young children, the stamina may be the parents. You know, what a good time bedtime story means. Uh, it's the amount of time that a parent has to read with a child at that early time. And there the may be limits to the parent's stamina. But I guess what you're really getting at is how can we encourage children to sort of tackle books that maybe are a little bit beyond their comfort zone. They're not the thing that the, the, the school is sending home. And again, I think teasers, uh, having your own knowledge of children's literature, what's going to grab my child, what will get them interested, how about reading them the first few pages and then letting them get on with it themselves. At an older age, peer groups are really important factors in encouraging children to, to read more. And one of the things that I've certainly found in my own research, and I don't know if Rachel would agree, is that girls are much better at networking around text than boys are. Boys tend to be solitary readers. They will develop a passion for X. 
be it Star Wars, be it science fiction, be it non-fiction, and they will totally commit to that genre. They don't tend to talk about it with their friends. Girls will swap. They'll say what's up, what's coming in, what's good. And peer group, a peer group effect is a really good incentive to a child to really want to know what's going on in this story and to read it through and get it for themselves. So I guess it's partly about having book talk as part of what goes on in the house, talking about things that you enjoy and encouraging people to share their interests. Thank you. Um, Rachel, can I ask you about the pros and cons of moving children onto harder texts, whether we should be trying to do that quickly? Okay, so in order to answer that, I'm going to go back to actually my, my own PhD research, because um, what I did for my PhD was I wanted to understand very young children. And when I say very young children, I'm talking about children three to, four, you know, three to five years old, um, their perceptions of themselves as readers. And in order to do that, um, I followed two cohorts of children, one from nursery into reception, one from reception into year one, to see the different factors that would influence how they... Um, what, what, just what they thought reading actually was, as well as their perceptions of themselves as readers. And probably not surprisingly found that these children were very, very, very heavily influenced by the reading scheme. And so they very much saw themselves, um, their, their proficiency in reading as being attached to where they were on the reading scheme. So for example, I remember talking to a little girl one day and saying, you know, can you show me what reading is? And she was like, oh, I can't because I'm a level five on the Oxford reading tree and we didn't have a level five, you know, so, so she, she couldn't show me. Um, so what I essentially found in that research was that the ch these really young children saw the reading scheme as being like training. It was, it was the thing that taught them how to read. So while they were on the reading scheme, they saw themselves, interestingly, as being non-readers. Sort of like then, provisional, provisional learner drivers kind of thing. Absolutely, totally. That's right. That's right. And so they saw themselves as being like, you know, like um, in the training. And they talked about, because uh, again, you're talking here about, about harder texts. They talked about the books at the, at the end of the reading scheme as being things like being a free reader. Now, I think when you think about the language that's attached to that, it's it's fascinating. So, you know, so you are not a free reader while you're on the reading scheme, but once you've got that permission that you've moved off the reading scheme, you're then allowed to read. So I, my own feeling is huge caution in terms of how we talk to children about harder books. What do we even mean by a harder book? You know, it's it's got to be something that that the children are are interested in, that they're motivated in, and absolutely, I would say confidence is absolutely key. So, so giving children books that, that they that they can't read, that they're unable to, to read, or that they quite frankly just don't enjoy reading, I would see as being really unhelpful. Does that does that answer that? Question? Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just while you were speaking, I was remembering being at infant school myself at, at the Guildhall Fetterment School in Bury St Edmunds, and we of course had the initial teaching alphabet, and it was a huge rite of passage to be allowed to read books in TO tra traditional orthography, isn't it? And whether you were allowed or not, and it was a bit like the pen license that people have when they're going from pencil to writing in pen in class and things like that. 
And we, we perhaps sometimes forget how important this idea of a rite of passage is for children and these stages, they expect to be in stages and they expect to, to have these sort of little hurdles throughout their education. But I do wonder if it holds them back if they don't realise that they can freestyle as well. Oh, well, oh definitely. Just to add in, though, on that, I mean, this notion of a free reader, it, 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 it's not that children have invented that or parents have invented that. It's actually part of what schools will say. So when you get to the end of the reading scheme, you are indeed declared to be an independent or a free reader. And at that point, what you are entitled to do is go and choose freely from the bookshelves something that you will read and you're no longer confined to those texts that the teacher thinks meet your level of proficiency. Now that's a kind of clash, if you like, between children's interests, they may be interested in reading something that doesn't match their level of proficiency, and the judgment made by a teacher. What I would say about that is that if children are interested in texts that they can't read for themselves, that's a core place where parents can read to children. So I'm thinking of a particular child I knew of who borrowed The Hobbit, a very long chunky book, in a classroom where it had become the fashion to read long and chunky books. He took it home, his teacher wasn't sure if he should have it, but actually his elder brother read it to him and he got through the entire book. So there was a kind of still struggling reader, still not in themselves totally competent, still not judged by the school to be able to access that kind of text, but he accessed it via his brother and got a lot of pleasure from it. So remember the other ways that we can introduce children to the joys and pleasures of reading texts that may indeed be harder than they themselves could deal with at a decoding level. That's brilliant, isn't it? And so good for his brother as well. Yes. Um, um, I wanted to ask Rachel now, um, what do you think, Rachel, about schools that have dedicated reading time at secondary level, now, often have a reading time at primary level, but what specifically do you think about doing this at secondary level? I would absolutely love to see that, um, but I think it should also include having time to, 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 for the teachers still to read to the children in secondary and beyond. Um, I mean, research suggests that you know, parents tend to read with their children up until about the age of seven and eight. Um, and then it's like, my child can now read themselves, so we don't need to do this. Um, and also, I guess in, in primary school, it's still seen as being something that you would do is to sit down and read to, you know, to the children all together, but not necessarily beyond that. Um, and yet there is something so completely fantastic about being read to. So I'm just going to give another example, actually, of um, so I've got two boys, I have to say, neither of them particularly interested in reading. Um, I've read, read to both of them. Um, the younger one, quite profoundly dyslexic and absolutely hates the concept of, of you know, sitting down and actually trying to access particular fictional you know, texts for himself. My elder son, not, not so much, you know, I think he's slightly dyslexic, but actually really, you know, he, he, he can, he can read. But I, I read to them and I read to him in particular right the way through, you know, I think it was sort of halfway through secondary school. It almost got to the point where he had a girlfriend and it was like, you know, we have to stop this now. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> you, you can't be coming in with a book tonight, mom. So it's, it was, yeah, but, but, but I think, but, but he also was, he, he also listened to, you know, 
I mean, he was saying to me literally just last night in the kitchen, I think I've heard Stephen Fry's voice more than anybody else in my life, listening to, to Harry Potter, but also listening to Sherlock Holmes and, you know, the other stories. And he was saying that if he can't sleep or whatever, that's what he does. He, he listens to, to, to those audiobooks. That's a very long way of answering your question, which I would say, yes, absolutely, to continue to have reading time in school, in your secondary school. But please, please let that also include having time to, to read to children and it being acceptable. I think there's also something about it being something that you would only do with young children. No, it's not. We all enjoy listening to a story. So that would be that would be my answer. That's great. I, I have the good fortune to be married to a former Radio 4 announcer. And we have a book called Bedtime Stories for Grown Ups I got for Christmas. And that that sends me off to sleep quite nicely, which I don't know is an insult or a compliment to his. Announcement. It's lovely. <laughs> lovely. Um, I'm really interested in what you said about the whole dyslexia issue and uh, audio books and so on. I wanted to ask Gemma, actually, um, do you think that there's any, is that a good strategy, do you think, generally for, for young people who have uh, reading difficulties and want to extend their literary canon? Um, and, and are there any other things that, that young people could try? I think audio books are a very good resource because yes, we do want everybody to be able to become proficient readers in that more narrow sense of the word and, and be able to deal with the print on the page and be able to make sense of quite large chunks of text and, and, and have those kinds of immersive experiences. But we do know that some children will struggle and certainly if a Rachel has a dyslexic son, I have a dyslexic nephew um, who for whom audio books uh, and also his mother's own voice were an enormous resource right the way through his adolescence. He may still struggle with spelling, but he has a really proficient and, and, uh, voice on the page because he's acquired the language of, of written texts. And that's a very important part of what reading gives us access to. Not only does it immerse us in different worlds, it opens up the language that we're familiar with and the ways in which we can use it. So I think it does give another string to a parent's bow, particularly parents who may themselves be facing, you know, there's so much pressure in our school system to learn to read, to do it on time, to get through all the hoops and hurdles. And I think as a parent, it's very hard not to be extremely anxious in that kind of context. Audio books does definitely give us somewhere else to go. A really interesting time to be dyslexic. Now the tech has come on and a, an Audible subscription or something can just open up the world. Could um, I say something about that? Oh, sorry, that, yeah, sorry. Is that, is that right? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's just uh, the other thing that I think I've been very, very aware of, particularly with, with my son, and it touches on what Gemma's just been saying as well, is that th there is such a, a huge stigma attached to being reasonably proficient in reading and writing. So, you know, you think about adults, if we were to say, oh my goodness, you know, I, I really struggle a bit with maths. Um, you know, I just can't do multiplication in my head. We'd all go, oh yeah, we'd, we'd kind of, you know, there'd be somebody who would sympathize. But if you were to say, you know, I'm really not very good at reading, then th there is that kind of, uh, you know, th there is something, there's a status about that. There is a value that's attached to that. And I think for children who are dyslexic, this is huge and it can, you know, it can, it can be very troublesome from the very early years. I think also for many children who are dyslexic, they become very, very clever at finding strategies to cope with it and to deal with it and to find ways 
um, my son, for example, I, I would just, it took me years to kind of realize this, but I was aware that I would ask him a, a question and he would, he would, um, he would just put pause and say, um, oh, he would just come up with something that was quite frustrating. He would just, you know, and I can then realized in later life that actually what he was doing was just buying himself a little bit of time just to process the, you know, the question and to then work out. And I was just thinking, gosh, you're doing this all day, every day in, uh, you know, in a school environment where you're supposed to get through the reading scheme and do this and do that. It must be exhausting. So I, I suppose my feeling is that it's a lot of people, just like Gemma was saying as well, that the reading to children, absolutely critical. You can't do too much of it. But I think the confidence is also absolutely critical. My son never had that feeling of finishing a reading scheme. He was never told you are a reader. He constantly felt as if he was poor, as if he was weak. Now he's actually now very successfully, you know, halfway through a maths and, and um, computer science degree. He reads sufficiently to be able to access that and to get to what, what he needs from it. But to him, a fictional text, a book is purgatory, you know? But I, I do feel that to some extent that was partly imposed upon him because he was made to feel as if he was not successful at school. And I'm sure that must be the case for other children too. And we know that typing of children in school, we know from the literature, this can be quite harmful, quite damaging um, if it's sort of a negative uh, reinforcement cycle. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Now we're getting some questions in from uh, members of the public thick and fast. So if I could ask you um, both to respond to some of these. So from Joe McSwain, um, Joe has asked, what are the most important things for non-experts to know about phonics teaching? Mm. Um, and when supporting a child with reading, what should they do or not do based on this knowledge? Can I start with you, Rachel? Oh, <laughs> I can see Gemma sign there. Um, okay, now I'm gonna start off by saying first and foremost, I am not an expert in phonics. So I would tend to come at this from a perspective of saying, don't overly worry about phonics. We need to be teaching children to, to use um, phonetic decoding skills. It is important. I would never, never, never be saying phonics doesn't matter. It really, really does. But it needs to be part of the package. So yes, we do want to, to be teaching children those skills. We do want to be you know, helping them to kind of understand literally the, the decoding, just like they would be looking at a car badge sign. I know that that means Mercedes. We know that these you know, letters together say sh or k or, or, or whatever. They need to have that. Equally, that's just a part of reading. You know, it's, it's also about looking at the pictures. It's also about hearing the story. It's also about wanting to access that, that story. It's also about the confidence and so forth. So my my very kind of, in a nutshell, advice would be don't stress about it, don't worry about it, and certainly don't make your child feel as if decoding is what reading is, because it's only part of it. So, Gemma. <laughs> I'm hoping we come in on this. Yeah, I've, I think you should. I've actually <laughs> been responsible for a team who wrote a phonics toolkit for adult learners, all right? And we wrote the phonics toolkit for adult learners at a point where it had become compulsory for adult literacy classes to teach phonemes and graphemes. 
Um, and the relationship between the phoneme, which is the sound, and the grapheme, the way of representing that sound in letter shapes, is a very important part of learning to read. And it is part of what children will acquire. Um, at, at the moment, it is very in favour in schools to teach that as a separate skill set and to teach it in an absolutely fixed sequence. And there is a push in schools to keep children away from texts that don't follow the sequence in which foaming graphene shapes are being taught. In working up a phonics toolkit for adults, actually we used a different approach. We used the adults oral language as the resource and then got them to identify and start chunking oral language into sounds. What we also then did is ensure that they knew that the ways of representing individual sounds are not infinite. They are a closed set. There's only this many choices. And this is where you then focus your attention, both on understanding the regularities so that you know an E and an A often goes together and it can either say read, as in one way of saying read, or it can say read, as in the other way of saying read. But you, you, you can kind of, you know the sound, you can link from the sound back to the grapheme. So understanding the relationship between sound and grapheme is important. There's more than one way of teaching it. If the way that it's being taught and the pace at which it's being taught within school isn't suiting your child, have a conversation with the teacher, all right? Because like many other things in life, things tend to appear as if they're written in stone. If you don't do it in this sequence, you'll never get it. Actually, that's less true than we think. And the phonics toolkit that we produced for adult learners was very much making adults the detectives of their own language and in which they're detecting what are the regularities in the graphemes and connecting them to phonemes. It is an important part of understanding an alphabetic system. There's more than one way of getting there. Emma, just a question from me before I go on to more of the public questions. Often in my research, um, I'm arguing that we have um, pretty wide levels of, it, of literacy uh, in the UK, just like the rest of Europe, you know. And whenever I look at the, the sort of high level data from the OECD or whatever, um, it says that, that, you know, we've got nearly 100% literacy. But when I'm looking at policy arguments, they say that, that often uh, children's literacy isn't very good in the UK. I'm just wondering where to go with that argument. Uh, I, I, well, what politicians are basing their opinion on is the test data that the system collects. The test data is a function of the questions you ask. It's not an absolute fixed declaration of a skill set. Um, there has been much talk that if children aren't reaching what was the equivalent of level four at the end of key stage two. In other words, a fixed level of competence, they would never survive the secondary curriculum. The reason people say that is because of correlations. There are correlations in the data set, but as a statistician I've worked with used to say, actually all the correlations are is a, a means of making a prediction they're making a prediction. They're not a statement of fact. Children can always break the prediction. They can beat the prediction about what they can do next based on their level right now. Now, 
I mean, I could, I, you know, there are some, for me, having looked at some of the, the data side of this quite closely, the most salient and point that will really help children get on the literacy bus and carry on through to a successful career is really, it's the investment we give to children's language and literacy development in the very earliest stages. And that's not about their decoding skills. It is about them being able to do things like sharing nursery rhymes. It is about exposing them to written language. It is about enabling them to do drawing, painting at home, all of those kind of fun activities that teach them how to hold a pencil. Um, there, there, there's a reason for investing there to get maximum impact later the work I've done, and it's with Liz Washbrook, and if anybody Googles Washbrook and Moss, Moss they will find it at Bristol University. It's open and accessible. Um, the, the, the key difference between boys and girls, boys are more inclined to do less, to present at the early years with uh, high level language and literacy skills, they're more likely to be on the weaker side. If you compare what happens to them and girls of a similar attainment profile in those very early years, girls buck the trend. They buck the trend and one of the reasons they seem to do so is because they're more heavily invested in reading for pleasure by age seven. All right, so if we can get children reading for pleasure earlier on, that's going to be a game changer for some of those kids and that is borne out by much larger data sets including the work that I've done with John Jerem on PISA and of course it's also there in Alice, Alice Sullivan's work so there's a lot of stuff out there saying reading for pleasure really does work it really does help um, and that, that doing something around this early on will probably have the maximum impacts. That's really helpful. Thank you. That leads me into um, a very nice uh, question from Sarah Raymond. Um, how do you help early readers in years five and six who might be embarrassed to read childish books but still need to know their sounds? Are there any schemes that follow letter and sounds or should a scheme not be used? What, what advice could we give, Gemma? Uh, I, I, I think, I mean, I take it from what the, the question, the, the question is sort of saying, I've got a child who still struggles to connect phonemes and graphemes. They're still struggling with some of the aspects of phonic knowledge. If, if that is the case in years five and six, I would be looking for other ways besides the ways that have already been tried. At the moment, what we're doing in primary school is we have a belief that if we teach phonics in this order, it will work like this. And if a child doesn't get it by the time they're in year two, then they need to do it again. Maybe look for other sources of advice um, and, and other ways of, of, of trying to build a child's confidence. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to ask on this one, and I'm hoping. Can we ask Rachel. What have you been through on this, Rachel? I would say um, a lot of it is about confidence, as we've already said. I think there are—I couldn't tell you any offhand—but there are now um, many more books that are available that are um, not so text-heavy. So things like graphic novels. There's now many, many um, graphic novels that are, you know, are really appealing 
but they don't make such a demand on the reader really in terms of, of the amount of, of printed text. So I would certainly go, go for those. Um, and again, I think it's about, you know, it, it, it is about um, finding things that are going to be interesting, finding things that that reader actually wants to read and wants to pursue. Um, I'll, very interested in what um, the, in terms of the question, in terms of saying that the child is in year five and six, therefore there is like a, you know, a stigma attached to reading, you know, babyish books. Well, now I think there are, there are many more books, you know, there are, there are picture books for key stage two that are, you know, that, that are, are, are tackling really quite kind of interesting issues, you know, refugees or, or social issues or, or, or whatever. So the, there are certainly more books out there. Um, tiny, tiny little, little example um, is, to come back to my, my own example of myself, I, I was brought up in a family that didn't read, but my mum read to me, which I know is, is very surprising. So we didn't really have books. I didn't really have that kind of you know, encouragement to read. But my mum chose, and I still don't know why particularly, but and I'm very glad she did, but she chose to read to me. And she read to me, you know, for the first, I don't know, four or five years of my life, which I think is why I'm doing the job that I'm doing now. Um, I then read to, to myself and I read everything but Ina Blyton, absolutely everything. How, how those kind of, you know, ginger beer fueled, um, you know, lacrosse sessions related to my you know, council estate in Scotland, I have absolutely no idea, but that was what I read. Um, and I loved it. And then I started secondary school and had, I still remember her now, I won't say her name, but a, a really barbaric, horrible English teacher who asked us to bring in a, you know, a book to read. I brought in my Enid Blyton book and she went, oh, well, I guess some of you um, develop faster than others, don't you? And that was it. I, I never read again for years and years and years <laughs> until, until eventually, you know, and it was because I didn't have that kind of environment at the time of people going, here's a suggestion, here's something you might like, you know, this is the kind, you know, just having those kind of conversations. That's my way of saying, I think teachers are, are critical in this role. And, you know, and th they are the ones who, you know, who, who might be able to say, do you know what, there is a book here, did you enjoy this one? Well, actually, here's something that, that you might, you might en enjoy reading. So I, I think for teachers just to get to know that body of literature is, is really, really important. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, we've got another question that if you could, uh, I could stay with you, Rachel. Um, is phonics the best way to teach children to read for children who have auditory processing issues? Is it the best way? Um, I'm not sure that I would say it's, it's I think, as, as we've said already, I think children do need phonics. It needs, it needs to go into the pot. It needs to be one of the, the strategies. It needs to be one of the skills. I think it's always going to be about emphasis and it's always going to be about the, the other skills and strategies that the child is developing alongside. Now, like I've said, I, I, am, I am not an expert in teaching children how to read and in terms of, of, um, of phonics as such. But what I am aware of is those issues of confidence and motivation and just how very, very easy it is, even with the most well-meaning of, um, of education, to actually turn children off and to make them feel as if they're unsuccessful from their very earliest years. So my answer to that would be, yes, they do still need phonics, but it's so important that it goes into the pot as part of a wider package. Would you agree with that, Gemma? 
Well, I think auditory processing, I mean, again, it's hard to know quite what the questioner is implying. I do know that, uh, you know, profoundly deaf children still learn to read and there, there are visual regularities. We, if we think about graphemes as kind of visual packages. I think the, I think the questioner means the kind of um, auditory processing problem that's a distinct pathology in its own right. So the, the, the sort of mental processing of language is just slower, perhaps. I mean, that you know, again, it's to do with thinking about what are the different ways available to help children who may struggle with auditory processing. Onset rhyme was briefly backed as a method of teaching reading because it's often an easier way for kids to chunk written language. Onset is just the first consonant and then the rhyme is whatever happens next. And a lot of nursery rhymes are built round onset rhyme. If a child is struggling with phonics, why not try onset and rhyme? I mean, again, I, you know, you may not have the best experts in the room for this, but my sense is if strategy A doesn't work, look for strategy B, you know, that, that some children won't get through by being given only one method and restricted to only one method. And I think we, in this sort of obsession we have in our school system at the moment, that the curriculum is about delivery and that the teacher has to deliver this content in this order. Children are individuals. We need to help them find their way through whatever the problems that reading may indeed be setting them. That means we can't minimize the problems. We can't just disguise them and wish them away. But please look for other methods, look for other ways. And on the back of that, it's it's maintaining the confidence of the learner is absolutely key and crucial. It comes back to the toolbox idea, I suppose. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Um, Rachel, um, final question. Um, this comes from Thomas Muddyman. Um, are there factors which should be taken into account specifically in developing literacy, literacy skills in young second language learners? Yeah, this is something I've been asked a few times, really. Um, and, and again, I know this is going to sound like a cop out, but it really isn't because I have thought about it. But I think the same thing applies, that for young children, it is a case of reading with that child, but reading in, in, in both languages or the languages that, 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 that the parent is interested in. Um, I think that really can't be kind of overemphasized. Over um, again, I think it comes back to those issues of, of not being too concerned. I mean, I've, I've certainly had people ask me whether, um, you know, it, by focusing on one language, they're worried about, you know, the other language. Um, suffering or, or whatever and I think for, for very young children it, it really is it's, it's the same thing it's it's about using both languages helping the child to kind of you know, to understand um to understand what, what's been what's been said but to, but to in, but to enjoy literacy to enjoy the books so I would I would be saying to have have books that, that are in um are in um, dual language I think is what I'm trying to think of and 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 to enjoy it would you agree with that, Gemma? Yes, absolutely. I mean, children are very versatile. They navigate two languages if they're growing up in bilingual homes. Some of them will be navigating 
three languages. If there's a language of the a religion, which may be different from the spoken language and different again from the language of the school. Children can cope with all of this. And in, in many respects, bilingualism is an advantage and encouraging children to read in a home language it will give them access to their home language it will maintain their knowledge of their home language and that can be really important within their own community and and there is nothing to be lost from burying a home language on the contrary there's a lot to be gained from celebrating it well that's a wonderfully positive note to end on um very sadly we're out of time and we'll have to leave it there um, I'd like to thank you for all your comments. Um, thank you very much to everybody who posed questions online. Thank you to our speakers, Rachel Levy and Gemma Moss. Please stay safe, everybody, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 